back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Oh, happy day. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're all doing well on this Monday, the seventh day of the month of November. Hope you all had a great weekend. As you can tell, watching this podcast, yours truly had a pretty good Sunday afternoon. I don't think there's any sport that fans live and die with more than the, the NFL. Just based on the fact that there's so few games compared to the other sports, and it's once a week. So you almost schedule your life once a week around this one thing, this one event. And at times it can <coughs> change our emotion, change our reactions week to week based on how things go. Like last week, you guys know I was down in dumps quite frankly, pissed off over the Jets losing their 13th straight matchup against the New England Patriots. And I was very hard on Zach Wilson, very you know annoyed with the way he played because felt like the Jets, outside of him, outplayed the New England Patriots. Was even ready to say, oh, the rest of this season is make or break time for Zach Wilson. Well, yesterday, <laughs> him and the Jets calmed all those nerves, calmed all those fears with a surprising, stunning, you know, momentum-building win over the Buffalo Bills, showing that, you know, they have a set, showing that, hey, they're ready to compete with the big boys in a team that, you know, if you looked at my preseason projections, I predicted that this will be the year that the Buffalo Bills <laughs> win the Super Bowl finally. But that doesn't mean I thought, oh, the Buffalo Bills were going to go 16-1 and and there weren't going to be hiccups along the way. And one of those hiccups happened at MetLife Stadium yesterday because – there's nothing better as a fan of a team than walking out of the building after a victory when not only your team was the better team for most of the day, but you were also a heavy, heavy underdog. You know, the, people thought after last week's loss to the Patriots, it's like, uh-oh, same old Jets. Here we go again. Jets are... 
going to start to fall apart. They were a cute story, but now without their lead running back, too many injuries on the offensive line, and Zach Wilson having another dud against the New England Patriots, they're going to come back to earth. But no, the Jets went out there yesterday and handed it to Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. You know, shoved it right down their throat from the onset. They showed they were there to play. And listen, this wasn't a perfect masterpiece by any means. This wasn't where you're sitting there from the second the whistle blows to start the game to the second uh, the whistle blows to end it. You're thinking, oh, we've got this one on lockdown. There were times where I was standing there on the second level, extremely, extremely concerned uh, about things. Now, now they were able to shut down the, the Bills running backs for the most part. The best ground game the Bills had was with Allen himself taking off because a lot of his throws yesterday were very Zach Wilson rookie-like. But after Allen had that long touchdown run in the second quarter, put uh, the Bills up by 11, I got a bit concerned there thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is about to turn into a disaster. But the Jets were real quick to come right back down the field, drove down and had a touchdown of their own, keeping this within a one-score game uh, throughout that first half, keeping this game in check. Thinking, oh, if they could just keep it to within four heading into halftime, uh, we've got something going here. We've got uh, some momentum building here. With the way our defense is playing, they're not able to take those normal deep shots down the field. Allen's making some throw mistakes here, and Singletary's not uh, running the ball well. Thinking, oh, the Jets got a shot here. But after that, you, know, you have the Bills come right down the field quickly, get within field goal range, but Bass misses a 55-yarder as we're heading into the break, and I'm feeling pretty good. There's a good, positive vibe in the building, the fans that are there, and it was kind of a 55-45 split there as far as Jet fans uh, to Bills fans. The Jet fans were feeling pretty good. We were jacked up. We're like, hey, we're in this. We've got a shot to do things here. And even when they started to have some things unravel in their favor, you know, that they, the offense came out of the tunnel humming. You know, a great call by Sala to go for the fake punt there and keep that drive going. And you, you get within striking distance. But then you have this nonsense coming with the sky cam um, malfunctioning and stopping the game for 10 to 15 minutes. People are flipping out like, hey, what the hell is going on here? This is cutting into the Jets' momentum. This is uh, killing this drive. And you know, two plays later, you get the, the strip sack by uh, Von Miller, really the only mistake that Zach Wilson uh, made on the day. But the Jets, you know, showed a lot of grit, showed a lot of character, even with all those things working against them, even with all those things uh, not going their way, they didn't fade, they didn't dissipate. You know, past Jet teams in this last decade would have just wilted away. 
but not this team. Not when you have a defense like they have. A defense that is going to keep them in every single game because you look at it. You have two guys on this defense in Quinn Williams and in Sauce Gardner who when's the last time you looked at the Jets and said that they have two young guys that are not just amongst the best players at their position in the sport, but amongst the best players in the sport. Now, right now, you'd be hard-pressed to say that they are not amongst you know the top 20 to 25 players in this sport with the way that they're playing. And look around them. There's not a weak link along this defense. Yeah, Franklin Myers makes some boneheaded penalties at times. But this defensive front that they run out there, the linebacking core is strong. The secondary, it's probably the best secondary I've seen from the Jets in a decade, going back to the Revis Cromartie days. And what what makes this secondary even more impressive is they don't have to blitz on this team. You know, the, the Bills kept trying to bait the Jets all day long into blitzing, but they were continuing with four-man fronts all day. And what's even more impressive is, you know, the Jets rotate in and out, like eight or nine guys along that defensive line. But it, do, it doesn't seem to matter who you're putting out there, whether it's Clemens, whether it's Huff, Huff, who might have had one of the game-defining plays in this late in the game on that final drive uh, by Buffalo where he uh, causes the fumble against Allen. That completely flipped that drive on his head. I mean, first you get the momentum there with uh, the uh, holding penalty, the offensive holding penalty on the offensive line that pushes back and negates what would have been a long play by Diggs. And then on second down, you got the strip by Huff that puts uh, Buffalo in a third and forever situation there where you know now they're going to be taking deep shots down the field so you can back everybody up and not have to uh, blitz there. Now you get an incompletion to Diggs and then... Uh, Sauce tips away the long pass attempt down the field to Davis. And we're sitting there happy, joyous, uh, the, uh, singing along the sweet Caroline. As the Jets sit here now after nine weeks, six and three, thanks to this ferocious defense that, like I said, all the way around, uh, you've got... Uh, Game breakers on the, this defense F, on all three levels. Guys are um, playing out of their minds right now, and a, a large chunk of this group is young guys. It's not like oh they piece this together with aging veterans. You know, Sauce is a rookie. DJ Reed is a relatively young guy that they were able to steal away uh, from uh, San Francisco. You know, they, the oldest guy, the only real old guys on this team, if you want to call them old as far as defense is concerned, is Mosley and uh, Rankins. The rest of the group is within their prime age as far as NFL players are concerned. And, you know, I, I love 
I mentioned before the, the fake punt on the, the last drive, but I love the game plan here by um, LaFleur throughout this. You know, clearly all throughout the week, he was pressing it in, in Zach's mind. Don't make stupid plays. Be smart with with the, the football. Yeah, be aggressive, but also don't be reckless. And you saw that when Zach needed to throw the football away, he uh, threw it out of bounds. He wasn't throwing it along the boundary line where someone could tiptoe and make it an interception like McCourty did last week. No, it was toward the stands if he was throwing it away. And even still, next play, he's coming out there and finally he's using his legs. When the the line parts like the Red Sea and there's no one open downfield, he's taken off and, and setting them up for a first down there, keeping the drive going, extending the the drive. And one underrated thing I've not heard many people bring up uh, uh, about this, you know, as annoyed as I was about the Skycam malfunctioning, I can only imagine how the Bills and their fan base were feeling at that point, were feeling about uh, that delay. Because remember, the Jets deferred to the second half. And they had that long drive to start the second half, start the third quarter there, where they got into Bill's territory. You add halftime. You add that long drive that was about seven or eight minutes there. Along with the about 10, 15-minute delay, you're talking at least 45 minutes in which Josh Allen and that offense are not on the field, icing them calming down what is widely regarded one of the better offenses in this sport, icing down what, even with the mistakes that he's made today, one of the front runners, one of the favorites to win the MVP uh, this season. And, you know, between that and then the, the fact that they stuck with the ground game, that the ground game they didn't get away from it like last week, especially that final drive. How beautiful was that? You, you come out seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter and eight consecutive runs with Robinson and Carter. And there was a point there. They ran to the left four consecutive times and the Bills could not stop it. And just all the way around, I, I'm pinching myself as you know I'm walking out of the building the fan base chanting J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. You got us mocking that that Bills chant that they do, uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, saying go home, Buffalo. And, and now, listen, I've been of the mindset week to week when it comes to the New York Jets. And I'm going to remain with uh, that mindset. Take everything one game at a time here. But this defense, the way they're playing, has me excited. And if the offense can even, you know, right now they're ranked in the bottom, you know, seven or eight as far as offense is is concerned in in, uh, the sport. If they could ever be, you know, these last eight weeks, middle of the pack, who knows how far this this team could go? Who knows how what this team could do down the stretch here? They've got 
me excited. They've got this fan base excited. That's all I, as a season ticket holder, as a lifelong Jets fan, that's all I ask for is, you know, after what I've watched for the last decade, give me a reason to be excited. Give me a reason that every Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock, to flip on the TV and be excited about the Jets playing rather than oh, putting the red zone on the TV and just having the Jets on the iPad as an afterthought. They're giving me an, a reason to be joyous, a reason to look forward to every Sunday afternoon. And quite frankly, with the way things are going, I hope that they remain Sunday afternoon. I hope uh, Outside that Thursday game they got coming up at the end of December, I hope they don't get flexed out at all. I hope remain it uh, Sunday at one o'clock. Keep sneaking up on people. Keep being an afterthought in in everyone's mind because what we're watching right now is really special from this defense. It's the best jet defense I've seen in a long, long time, and you know. You saw a lot of good things out of this offense yesterday, especially with the ground game and with Zach Wilson's uh, decision-making. That keeps up. Who knows what could happen with this Jets team as we go on here. And no, I'll look at that as we go on here because they've got a tough schedule coming up through the rest of this year. I'm also... Of course, uh, going to talk some baseball, uh, talk about the World Series coming to an end on Saturday night and, w- and with the start of free agency. But mixing that, the, the re- like I said, the rest of the Jets schedule talk about, uh, mixing some college football, haven't talked about that. And of course, the biggest annoyance, biggest embarrassment in all of professional sports, which I thought I was going to talk about to start today until the Jets provided me with a lot of happiness uh, yesterday afternoon. So, hey, it's a Positive Vibes Monday here, everybody. Jet fans, stand up. Get excited. And if you're not a Jet fan, hey, sit back, relax, put your feet up on the table, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. We are from New York. We back the smack talk. You do it your way. We rap in Broadway. This is our home team. We rock the dark green. We fight and we scream for game. For anyone listening to this podcast, be aware. All podcast long, as I'm coming back from a break, we're going to be playing that Jets anthem. And why not? I'm amped up. I'm pumped up. I'm excited. I'm happy after yesterday's victory at MetLife against the Bills, just as every other living, breathing Jet fan in their right mind should be. 
on this Monday afternoon. And that took my mind off of some of the annoying things that are going on with uh, some of the teams I root for. I'll get to the Yankees a little bit later on because they outright aggravated me on Friday. And they haven't even played in almost two weeks now. But, uh, of course, got to get to the Brooklyn Nets, who about a week ago at this time, I was predicting the end of Steve Nass's run as head coach of this team. I was saying, oh, if they are not at 500 by the time they face the Knicks this coming Wednesday, he should be fired. Well, they uh, decided to make that change a little bit earlier than expected. And sometimes this is where it sucks, the timing of me recording this podcast, because it was less than 24 hours after recording last week's podcast where I'm getting done working out on Tuesday afternoon and I see breaking across uh, Twitter via Adrian Wojnarowski that the Nets and Steve Nash have mutually agreed to part ways. Quite frankly, for those of you who are new to the sports world and don't understand that, in layman's terms, Steve Nash got fired. That is the most polite way to ever tell someone that they have been fired by going the mutual agreement to part ways route. And quite frankly, Steve Nash should be doing cartwheels right now over losing this job. Because, listen, he probably should not have been hired for this job in the first place two years ago. Probably should have gone with a more experienced head coach. Hell, we shouldn't have gotten rid of Kenny Atkinson to begin with. But as we know, in the NBA these days, some of these guys act like a bunch of babies and Anytime that there's a head coach that pushes them, that wants to make things tough on them in the slightest bit in practice and wasn't a a guy that they came in with or came up with, they're quick to run them out of town as Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant did to Kenny Atkinson, ruining what was a very cute story a couple of years ago. But they got their wish. They went with Steve Nash. And there was a whole bunch of nonsense that went on along the way here. Whether it be Kyrie Irving and how he handled the January 6th uh, Capitol riots. Leading to uh, them having their hand force and trading for James Harden. And then you're thinking, oh, that group together is a sure lock to win a championship they won one round and came within the inch of a toe of getting through a second round, even with Kyrie Hurt and James Harden playing on one leg. That's all they've done in the Steve Nash era. Because after that, you had Kyrie unable to play because of the COVID vaccine mandates uh, in New York City, and we could debate till the end of time, whether that was the right or wrong decision on how to handle that. They were just playing by the the rules there and 
kind of, if you ask me, unfair rules uh, based on the fact that road teams could could still have unvaccinated players play in Brooklyn and in Madison Square Garden. But then James Harden forced his way out uh, last year. Ben Simmons came here and never played until this year. The Nets got swept by the Celtics in the first round. And it was just, you know, kind of a disaster all the way around for a team that was still winning games, mostly thanks to one of the 10 greatest players in the history of this sport in Kevin Durant. And then even he and his little uh, prima donna incident this summer trying to force a trade out of here and making it almost a him or Sean Marks and Steve Nash kind of situation. So Steve Nash has got to be kind of doing cartwheels that he gets to leave this disaster, leave this crap show, because it, it, it very rarely felt like it was truly all about basketball. It felt like it was one drama after another. And for his sake... I hope that he gets another head coaching opportunity somewhere along the line, an opportunity where it can be just about coaching basketball, just about uh, trying to win basketball games, not having to answer about disaster after disaster each and every single day. And that's what it became for him in the last two weeks, especially since October 28th. When Kyrie Irving had his latest Kyrie Irving moment. When he decided to share the link or share the uh, a, a post of promoting a anti-Semitic film that is being released on Amazon. A film entitled Hebrews... Hebrews to Negroes wake up black America that promoted anti-Semitism toward Jews and tried to claim a lot of things in our, in both our country's history and the history of both African Americans and Jewish people. It's just a bunch of hoax, such as claiming the Holocaust was a hoax or claiming that Slavery was not as bad as uh, black people try to make it out to be. And now all of Kyrie's defenders, all they want can come out and say, oh, he just, what's the big deal? He just shared a link to something. He, He didn't post a comment to it. People, I don't care what form of social media it is these days. You share a link to something, you're promoting it. You're saying, hey, this is something I, unless you you have a comment to it saying, hey, don't watch this, or saying, oh, this is horrible, this is trash. You're promote by sharing it, you're promoting it. And since then, he's tried to claim the victim role. Now, whether it be uh, his initial interview that he did uh with ESPN's Nick Friedle and trying to almost claim a victim role here, uh, claiming that, oh, he wasn't promoting uh, this and accused 
uh, journalism of dehumanizing him by simply asking about all of this. And the, the whole time, it, it led to a lot of embarrassment, whether you had people coming to the Barclays Center last Monday and Tuesday and sitting in the front row wearing T-shirts um, promoting against anti-Semitism or him uh, you know, the, avoiding talking to the media after each one of those games. Even the embarrassment of where you're not hearing from NBA Commissioner Adam Silver about this. The, the Nets were being very coy in how they were handling uh, this spot, trying uh, to get him talking to the media, and he wasn't. And even players around the league being very hush-hush about this, even though we've seen how outspoken this league was about the Donald Sterling situation, and anytime there is a social justice issue, they, the NBA, just like the NFL, being at the forefront of these issues and never shying away from a microphone being in their face. And when... Kyrie was given several chances to apologize, several chances to say, hey, I uh, don't represent this or I'm against anti-Semitism. The first chance he gets in front of the media on Thursday morning, he continues to make an ass out of himself by refusing uh, to answer a question about is he anti-Semitic or not, saying that it's just a narrative that the media is trying to come up with, or when talking about that film saying that there was a a, a lot of things wrong uh, about it, but not everything is true. Everything about that film, and I haven't seen the the promotion video for it. I haven't seen the film, nor do I plan on seeing it. Everything about that is wrong. When And I don't get these people that are out there that are trying to push and promote these conspiracy theories against different races, different ethnicities, different uh, uh, religious beliefs. But anybody out there putting content out like this when you didn't have to live through those times is a piece of garbage. I, mean, I, I don't know how this video made it onto Amazon. And this is coming from an Amazon employee at, at the warehouse up in Carteret, New Jersey. But I sincerely hope that it gets taken down. I sincerely, and I'm all for my company making money, but this is not something that Amazon should be making money off of. And Kyrie Irving, for him promoting this, for him posting this on social media, I don't, I don't care if there's a comment with it at, at all. You share it, you have it up on your Twitter page without any negative commentary, negative caption, that's you promoting it. And finally, the, the Nets and the NBA after spending almost a week dragging their feet through the mud on this, stepped forward and said, 
absolutely not Kyrie because the Nets have suspended Kyrie for at least five games due to conduct detrimental to this team. And I say at least there because who knows, this suspension, it could turn out to be indefinite. This suspension could last for a a, a long time because the Nets are pests. They're annoyed at Kyrie. It's one thing how he handled the vaccination uh, mandate or how he handled things after January 6th. This is the worst thing Kyrie Irving has ever done to kind of promote this conspiracy theory to uh, almost be until his feet were held to the grindstone and playing was being taken away from him. He didn't show any sympathy, any remorse until he put up that Instagram post late on Thursday, about two hours after his suspension was announced. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like Kyrie do, does anything until his feet are put to the fire here. And what's even worse is Kyrie wants to be this voice of the voiceless. He wants to be almost this do-gooder, this person that is out there representing others. But he seems to do it without wanting to do the homework, without wanting to get all of his facts straight, without wanting to truly know whatever cause he's representing. Because he'll promote something or he'll say he's representing something or not representing something and then completely disappears. And that, you know, finally, it took public humiliation. It took public embarrassment. It took them getting ripped to shreds off of across every kind of media platform, television, the radio, listening to countless uh, radio stations where Jewish people are calling in in tears over the fact that you know a star athlete in their city would would promote this video or share this video enough was enough and who like i said before who knows if he ever plays for the nets again because the nets have given him almost a checklist that he must complete before he can be eligible to play again he he has to apologize and condemn the the, the movie he has to donate uh, half a million dollars to anti-hate crimes, go through sensitivity and anti-Semitic training, um, meet with ADL and Jewish leaders, and meet with Nets owner Joe Tsai and demonstrate an understanding about the wrongdoings here. And quite frankly, does anybody think that he's going to do that? Does anybody think that he, he, you know, right now, he's sitting somewhere, and he's been doing this since Thursday, contemplating how he's going to work through this, how he's going to try and switch the narrative here, and once again, try to make us all look like a bunch of idiots. No, Kyrie, it's not going to work this time. It's not going to go down like that this time. You know, you keep trying to 
make yourself look like the smartest human being in the room where in reality you look like a jackass you act like a jackass and you know in the long run the way you act is going to be a big part of why this Nets team is going to have to break things up between him and all his nonsense and that's why the Nets won't give him a contract extension that's why no matter what this is going to be the last year he is associated with the Brooklyn Nets franchise uh the they got to get off Ben Simmons somehow because you cannot have a guy on your team that is afraid of the basketball or afraid to shoot the basketball at any point during the game. And Kevin Durant's got to be sitting there and wondering to himself, even though I'm friends with Kyrie, why the hell am I going to put up with all of this nonsense? I mean, Kevin is the biggest... uh, Put all of the off-the-court stuff to his side. Let's just play basketball guy that there is. That's why, you know, he had some comments the other day that he got ripped to shreds about saying that he wished that they had just kept playing basketball and, and kept this quiet as an organization and had to come back on Twitter uh, later to make sure everyone knew that he's against hate, he's against anything anti-Semitic or derogatory toward any race or religion. But in the long run, that all of this nonsense is why the net this Nets team as we know it is not going to work out. And they've got to break this thing apart. They've got to break this thing down and just quite frankly start over. And I've known from the beginning it was going to be because of Kyrie. Look, he forced his way out in Cleveland um, when it came to being teammates with uh, LeBron. Then the Celtics were better without him than they were with him. And then look what a train wreck it's been so far in Brooklyn. They've won one playoff series with him, and he's only played in about half the games he's been eligible to play because it's been one thing after another. First, it, it was January 6th. Then it was the vaccination mandates, and now it's promoting something that he's trying to take back steps from. Only this time, it's not going to work. And this time, he's made himself out to be more of a villain, more of an ass than he ever has been before. Because I don't know how anyone, anyone with a brain can view him as any type of martyr or anything other than the problem here in this situation. All right, going to take another break here. Come back on the other side. Turn my attention to something more pleasant. College football. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
With everything that's been going on, with the start of the NFL season and with Major League Baseball's postseason, the NBA, I haven't been talking about college football that much so far this year. But I've been paying attention. I'm aware of what has been going on. It's perfect time to get really back in the mix when it comes to college football. First off, it's my favorite time of the college football season because you, you get one of my favorite, if you want to call it gimmicks in, in college football, Maxion, when the MAC conference plays their conference games on Tuesday and Wednesday night every week. So, hey, midweek football, sign me up for that. But it, more importantly, now becomes separation time. Now becomes the important time because last Tuesday night was the college football playoff committee's first revealing of uh, their uh, rankings. And uh, they put out their uh, top 25. In particular, we pay attention mostly to the top 10 because as we're going down the stretch here with everybody having four games left to play, you look at and say, all right, who are going to be these teams in the mix for the college football playoff. And as of last week, you would have looked at it and your playoff is Tennessee, Ohio State, Georgia, and Clemson with Michigan and Alabama and TCU on the outside looking in. Well, after this week, we now have some chaos. Now, after this week, we have some drama added to the mix here because on Saturday afternoon, you had the biggest, um, the, or on Saturday in general, you had the two biggest SEC matchups of the season. As in the afternoon, you had uh, number three Georgia hosting number one Tennessee, a battle of undefeateds. And then that night in Death Valley, LSU was hosting Alabama. Georgia pretty much looked at Tennessee and laughed at them, looked at Tennessee and was like, yeah, you're number one? <laughs> what a joke. And, you know, Tennessee, you know, you give them credit for starting off 8-0, and but now they finally have their first test of the season, and Hendon Hooker and company wilted very quickly, had no chance against Georgia. Georgia, much like the Jets yesterday, weren't running many blitzes, weren't running uh, many things defensively other than three- and four-man rushes, and were making life miserable all day. And remember, they had just lost one of their best uh, linebackers in the last week, Nolan Smith, out for the year, and still made things hellacious for uh, Tennessee, put in a position where Stenson Bennett was just like, just don't go out and make a mistake. Just try to uh, manage this game as uh, well as possible. And Georgia, you know, it's very few times you're going to look at it in college football and see 27-13 and feel like it was a blowout. But let's face it, Georgia, if they really would have put their foot on the gas offensively, could have scored 45 against Tennessee and really made this an embarrassing, deflating day for them. And now, now Tennessee's got to hope that Georgia falls on its ass and just 
completely craps the bed because unless they do, they're not getting the SCC title game. And they're damn sure got no shot left in uh, the uh, playoff. I don't care what else happens around them. Even with what happened on Saturday night, which, you know, I I figured Georgia was going to give Tennessee a tough time, was going to win that game. I did not expect LSU to A, put up the fight they did against Alabama, but B, win against Bama, especially in the fashion that they did. I mean, not just how they ran the football uh, down uh, Alabama's throat, and uh, Jaden Daniels clearly outplayed Bryce Young uh, for most of the night. But you're looking at LSU, it's they're a 13-and-a-half-point underdog. We've looked at Brian Kelly as as kind of like a, a jokish figure ever since he got hired there. And he had his statement victory as head coach of this program with not just beating Nick Saban, but beating him in overtime, showing the Cajuns to go for it on a two-point conversion attempt. You know, that was gutsy. That was ballsy because, hey, that's your season there. And now with that victory, it keeps them in line to do something that has never been done before. You know, if they went out all the rest of their games, they go to play Georgia in the SEC title game. If they ever could pull off that upset, if they ever could pull off that kind of miraculous win, we are talking about for the first time in the history of this college football playoff, a two-loss team making the uh, the playoff. Because you look at what's around them. Clemson lost to Notre Dame in, quite frankly, embarrassing fashion. I thought that Dabo you know, went too desperate here in going to the freshman quarterback uh, late in the third quarter, and it blew up right in his face. But Clemson losing, now them as a one-loss team. The ACC is out of the mix. They were the only, ACC's only hope at getting in this, and now they're out. You look at with the Big Ten. The Big Ten has both Ohio State and Michigan. Both held serve on Saturday night, although Ohio State was a struggle there for a while against Northwestern. But... Uh, they play each other in the final week of the season. One of them is going to go to the Big Ten title game. Although, if it's a close loss for Michigan, maybe they could still sneak in to the playoff a- as well. So now you're looking at a spot where you got the ACC out. You got Bama with two losses. They're out. Maybe starting to see somewhat of the decline of the Nick Saban dynasty there. What do you have to go up against now? You have TCU who's undefeated in the Big 12 and has Texas coming up uh, this coming week uh, uh, there in Texas. They've got to win out and win the Big 12 championship game. They're not going to put a one-loss Big 12 team into the college football playoff. You've also, with the losses of Alabama and Clemson, and potentially only one team in uh, the Big 10 getting in, it brings the Pac-12 back in the mix here because you have three teams that, in all likelihood, 
are going to be ranked in the top 10 in this coming week's uh, rankings. In Oregon, USC, and UCLA, that all have one loss. Now, the problem for UCLA is their one loss is to Oregon uh, last month, in which they were never even competitive in the game uh, up there in uh, Eugene. But then uh, Oregon, their one loss, while they got smoked by Georgia opening weekend, that was on a neutral site. That, that might not get held against them as much as if it was in Athens or if it was in Eugene. And USC is sitting there uh, with one loss against a formidable opponent in Utah, losing by one to them. So the winner of the Pac-12 championship, if it's a one-loss team, they're sitting there, them and TCU, looking at Michigan and Ohio State, hoping that one of them just annihilates the other one on the way to getting to a Big Ten championship, and that Georgia wins uh, the SEC. Because if LSU ever upsets them in the SEC title game, that creates even more of a you know mess or chaotic situation here. They're not going to exclude the SEC champion from the playoff ever, even if it is a two-loss team. If Georgia's one loss is in the SEC title game, they'll still bring them along uh, for the ride. So then you're left, if you're TCU and the Pac-12, of hoping that Michigan or Ohio State, as I said, blow the other one out and have one loss or no losses and win the Big Ten uh, championship. It's going to be fascinating these last three weeks, seeing how all of this plays out, even you know through that week after Thanksgiving with all of uh, the conference title games taking place. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to the Jets, I'm taking things week by week. And that's the only, as a Jet fan who has not seen their team play a postseason game since January of 2011, the 2012 season, going to be 12 years this year if they uh, uh, don't make uh, the postseason. That's the only way you can look at it. You can't get too high, get, get too low. I mean, the, the best part about yesterday's win is that it's coming right before their bot. So normally my mindset is celebrate the win until Wednesday and then Thursday you start looking toward the next week's opponent. Well, hey, we're celebrating for the entire week. can sit back, enjoy uh, watching everyone else try to kill each other on the red zone uh, next week. And then by next Monday, the mindset is how to get redemption against the Patriots. Because that was a game the Jets gave away eight days ago. And that's the only thing, excuse me, that's the only thing you can look at here with the Jets is this one game, this one week. Because you think beyond that, you're going to drive yourself crazy. You can't, you know, that we see this in the NFL. Things change week to week. We see a lot of unexpected, a lot of crazy things. You look at the, the Jets schedule. They've got the Patriots, then follow that up with a home game against the Chicago Bears. And while the Bears traded away outside of Eddie Jackson, any one of 
true quality on their defense in the last week. They seem to have found a, an offense. They finally are figuring out how to use uh, Justin Fields the right way. They give him a, a weapon in Chase Claypool. They look like a legitimate offense, even at three and six, a, a team that you can't just look past. You can't just say, oh, it's the Bears, and uh, they're an easy victory. No, they're going to come and compete every week. And after that, then you've got the probably the most disrespected 7-1 team in the history of the NFL in the, the Minnesota Vikings, and that's mostly because of Kirk Cousins' postseason history. The fact that, hey, he's great in the 1 o'clock time slot, but you take him out of that, he's um, a disaster waiting to happen. But you look at the weapons, they have more weapons than the New York Jets do, or at least more experienced weapons than the New York Jets do. With Jefferson, with Thielen, with multiple good running backs, including uh, Dalvin Cook there. Who even you take him out of the backfield, you have Madison back there, you could stick Cook out wide as a receiver. Hell, they uh, even uh, made an upgrade at uh, tight end this week uh, with the trade with the Lions. Uh, um, um, adding uh, to their tight end room. And he, even with that trade, the Lions, the Lions are showing still that they're feisty, they're fiery, they're competitive. You know, with what they did uh, to uh, Rodgers and uh, the Packers yesterday, I mean, the Packers look like an absolute lost cause there. With Rodgers now playing down to the level of his team around them, I mean, he had two interceptions in the red zone yesterday. We've uh, heralded him for years on the fact that he doesn't turn the ball over in the red zone. And he had it on back-to-back drives. Would have had three interceptions in the red zone if not for the fact that the play started at the 22-yard line. And they just seemingly can't get out of their own way. You know, you look at the Jets' schedule it is no cakewalk by any means between those games. Uh, they've, they've got the Lions coming up in December. Jacksonville is their Thursday night game. But the Jaguars, they just came back from down 17 to Oakland uh, yesterday. Now, what does help is that game is going to be in uh, East Rutherford. And it's going to be in the middle of December where you expect it, uh, for that as a night game. The weather's probably going to be like 25 degrees that night with bad wind. And we've seen how Lawrence can play in less advantageous uh, weather conditions. But the Jets, you know, they'll finish up the season in January in Seattle, who, you know, Geno Smith, our old friend, keeps marching along uh, to a Pro Bowl level campaign and finish up with the Dolphins, who made probably the biggest noise of the deadline, adding Jeff Wilson to that backfield and adding a legitimate pass rusher in Bradley Chubb to their defense, even though their defense couldn't uh, stop a nosebleed yesterday against the Bears. I'm excited. I'm pumped up. I'm you know, doing cartwheels over what the Jets are doing. But let's not lose perspective. Let's not lose Get, go insane just yet here. Take it week by week. Take it one game at a time. 
Yes, the Jets should be a playoff team this year. Yes, this should be a double-digit win season. But don't think beyond this coming or two weeks from now's game against the New England Patriots. Celebrate, enjoy this win now, and then we'll think about the Patriots uh, when we get there. And we'll think about anything beyond that when we get to that moment. But it's hard. I'll admit it. It's hard. It's hard not to be excited because this, quite frankly, is the best Jets team and especially best, best Jets defense we've seen in over a decade. All right, going to take one final break here, come back on the other side, and turn my attention to Major League Baseball. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Cannot get enough of hearing that anthem before coming back from these breaks. Such a happy day. Such a a joyous day as a Jet fan. But now I gotta be fair. Now I gotta do something that I've dreaded the thought of doing for a while. Dreaded the thought of doing ever since this occurred late Saturday night. Congratulations, Houston Astros, on winning your second world championship in the last six years. You finally won something without having to cheat along the way. There. You happy now? All right. And listen, you didn't have to. This should go to show you guys. You didn't have to do all of that nonsense that you did back in 2017. You were really legitimately that good. But you forever put a stain on that title, a title that should be stripped away from you. But I will give you credit where credit is due. The Astros were the better team. They, even when it looked like things were about to go awry for them after the Phillies pulverized them in game three, scoring all seven runs on home runs, tying a World Series record for most homers in a game. The Astros were able to quickly turn the page and bounce back. And, you know, what better way than with their second combined no-hitter of the year, once again in a game started by Christian Javier and making history on their way to a championship. Only the second no-hitter in the history of the World Series, the first, of course, being Don Larson's perfect game in 56. But you look at the the Astros' offense 
especially the last two rounds, was not dominant, was not, you know, overwhelming. They just did enough along the way to get the job done, especially, you know, you look at it, Altuve didn't do much in this postseason. Bregman had moments as well as Alvarez, but they weren't playing at an all-star clip. And the guy that was really the catalyst for them, that was the driving force offensively, was Jeremy Pena. And quite frankly, I don't think there's, as great as Carlos Correa was from, I don't think there's any Astro fan that's sitting there right now saying, man, we really miss Carlos Correa. Because Pena, you know, every time they needed the big hit, every time they needed to clutch it, he was there. He was the guy getting the job done in uh, that spot en route to being the World Series MVP. And, you know, where the Astros were able to bounce back offensively after an awful game three, the Phillies were not able to. And the Phillies, they got to a point where, much like the Yankees, they were so dependent on the home run that when the home runs stopped, they had nothing offensively. They had no firepower to get the job done. Whether it be, you know, after uh, Schwarber's home run to start game five, that did nothing offensively, you know, left a small army on base. And then in, in game six, Swerber's home run was one of three hits that they had on the night. And the, the, the last two games of this series, as much as I've credited Rob Thompson and as well-deserved the contract he, extension he's gotten and getting the interim tag taken off as the manager there. After all these years, he's deserved a full crack at being somebody's manager. He let the analytics get to him in these last two games. I perfectly, I don't understand what he was thinking in in, uh, these last couple of games. You know, you go back to game four, he pulls Nola with the bases loaded in the fifth inning in a scoreless game. And goes to Alvarado just because, of, oh, it was a lefty-lefty match. I'm sorry. I've got one of my top two starters out there. He's only thrown 67 pitches. Had not really been in trouble uh, for the most part. I, mean, I don't know whether he was already thinking ahead to wanting to bring him back on three days rest in game seven. But you let the Phillies back in, in this series because you let... I'm letting my my best guy go down if I'm Thompson in that spot. I'm not pulling him for some middle-of-the-pack reliever in Alvarado just because, oh, the stats say to do that. Just because, oh, he's a, a, a lefty facing a lefty. Your guy had only thrown 67 pitches. It's only the, the fifth inning here. You have a two, he managed that like they were down two games to one, not like they were up two games to one. Nola gets out of that with only giving up a run or two. You still have the Astros clinging in what's a must-win game for them. Instead, Alvarado lets the floodgates open up there. It's 5-0, and the Astros pitching staff is coming in, pitching free and easy on the route to that no-hitter. And that kind of, that let that entire series get away from them. And then in, what he did in Game 6... 
once again, Wheeler is in no trouble at this point. Wheeler, it's runners on the corner with one out. And you pull Zach Wheeler, who had been your best pitcher all year long, just to bring in Alvarado to face Alvarez. I'm sorry. I'm going down with my top guy in that spot. Not bringing in some journeyman middle reliever. And if you are pulling them, go to uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez or David Robertson. Not some middle-of-the-pack guy just because he throws left-handed. I, when are these managers, one of these organizations going to get it? That you cannot manage the postseason the same way you manage in the regular season. You have got to have a feel for the moment. You've got to have a feel for these spots. I don't care what the analytics say. My eyes are telling me that that's the first inning that Zach Wheeler's in any trouble. My eyes are telling me in game four, that was the first inning Aaron Nola was in any trouble. Both of them had thrown less than 70 pitches in that spot. And you let the Astros off the hook. You let them right back in the game. Aaron Nola, like I said, gets out of that giving up one or two runs, and you're still within striking distance. Instead, you let the Astros back in the series. And then as soon as Alvarado gives up that home run to Alvarez, you knew the series was over. You knew that game was over because the Astros' bullpen had been dealing this series. It didn't matter what it was. Uh, Brian Abreu whether it was uh, Montero, uh, whether it was uh, Hector Neris, Ryan Presley, all of those guys were dealing throughout this series and coming up uh, clutch in, in the big spots. And you know, I'll give Dusty Baker credit here. He wasn't just rushing to them or just because the numbers said to. He was stuck with his gun. He stuck with his guys. And all of these young pitchers that were coming of age as Verlander up until Game 5 was struggling in the World Series. You're watching Framero Valdez and Christian Javier pitch great in, in this series and look like guys that are going to be at the forefront of their rotation for years to come. So it pains me to say it. I'm annoyed to say it. But congratulations, Houston Astros. Now go the hell away. Now with the World Series being over, free agency is going to be getting started. It, now that you can't technically you can't talk to another team's free agent until Thursday because it, right now we're still in that exclusive period. But the Mets wasted no time. The Mets got right out in front of it and said to hell with exclusive free agency or letting one of our guys uh, uh, test the open market. Last night as I'm riding home from uh, the Jets game, I hear that they have locked up closer Edwin Diaz to a historic contract, a well-deserved contract, and it shows you how one year can change everything. We go from Diaz at the end of 2021 being a bum, every Met fan wanting him out of Queens. To now, he's one of the golden childs. He's a hero. You have Met fans everywhere doing their little trumpet taunt, playing uh, that theme song 
that he comes out of uh, the uh, bullpen to on route to what was a phenomenal year. One of one of the best years of any reliever in this sport. We only blew three saves, struck out well north of 100 batters in 62 innings pitch, had a microscopic ERA and whip, and gets rewarded by getting the richest contract ever handed out to a relief pitcher. Five years for $100 million, first time ever that a closer has eclipsed the nine-figure mark. Hell, it's the first time a reliever has ever gotten the contract of $20 million per season. I, God bless him. You hope, if you're a Met fan, he lives up to it. Because, I mean, just look across town at what disaster the end of the Rolls Chapman contract turned out to be. But after the year he put forward, bouncing back, not just what he did on the field, but mentally bouncing back. The fact that this this guy was a pariah by Met fans, and now he's one of the most popular Mets, and it has turned his career back into being one of the most dominant relievers in baseball. Now, the Mets still have a lot of work to do this offseason. You have your ace locked up in Scherzer. You have your closer locked up in Diaz. But it seems like everybody in between that is a free agent. With... With uh, DeGrom, Bassett, um, Carrasco, and Walker all free agents. You've got to fill spots two through five in that rotation. And pretty much you name it, and they're a free agent in that bullpen. With uh, with, uh, Sefa, Lugo, and company, everybody out there was on an expiring contract. May as well. So they've got a lot of holes to fill on this pitching staff. And going to be uh, interesting to watch them this offseason. Them, along with the Yankees, both coming off of disappointing ends to their season. Now, the, the Yankees, they aggravate you even more. And they haven't even played in about two weeks. And finally, they talked to the media on Friday. And now, currently, Brian Cashman, who... His contract is up with the Yankees, but he's working on a, a handshake agreement with Hal Steinbrenner. Now, every time he talks, he just aggravates. He he tries to make himself seem like he's the smartest guy in the room, where you just want to reach through the screen and smack the crap out of him and be like, get your head out of your, your ass. And the goal, the goal of him and Boone the other day, first off, Boone, I understand he's not going to rip any of his players in, in uh, the media and... That's pretty much why he got hired as the manager in the first place. But he spent that entire press conference essentially kissing the ass of IKF and Josh Donaldson. Even admitted that, you know, while there were stats out there that were showing what uh, we all saw with our own eyes, and that's that IKF was a bad defensive shortstop, the Yankees were looking away from that the whole time, only looking at the numbers, telling them what they wanted to see rather than uh, what was clearly being shown. But then you get the nonsense by Brian Cashman saying, quote, people don't get let go because of results. If they have a good process and they're doing the job well, that's taken into account, end quote. 
So really? So it's more about the process and doing things your way than it is the results. That they they've finally admitted that that they don't care how many times that they're wrong in how they they do things. They're going to keep doing it their own way and continue to get smacked in the face. So essentially it's this Yankee fans they're going to have a team that's competitive every year, go out there, win 95 games, make the postseason, and keep getting smacked in the face by the, the same team or two every single damn October. What happened to the Brian Cashman that said that he doesn't care about winning champion a championship, he cares about winning championships? Well, newsflash, boss, you've won, you haven't won a title since 2009, and you've won two titles in the, this millennium. Yet, you're still all about the process more than the results. Yet, keep doing that. Keep keep, keep doing that process over results mindset. Look how that's, what that's done with the 76ers over, over across the bridge in Philadelphia. Tell me, tell me how that's worked for them so far. Please, give me a break. Every time these two guys talk it's insulting and just because Hal Steinbrenner likes them it seems like they're going to keep a job forever I mean it makes you wonder what they're going to do this offseason they're going to do anything creative or they're going to just do a bunch of nonsense that has you thinking that they're in the market of winning a championship but in the end it's going to be to quote another team that I root for, the same old New York Yankees. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, November 7th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, happy, healthy rest of your week. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. Go Jets. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.